Hello, welcome to another episode of the Firm Returns podcast. So today I'm going to go through a couple of my recent posts. Um, so I've started a new newsletter series called Portfolio Updates, which are some of them are quite similar to the sort of stock analysis ones I've done up until now. Um, they'll be going over a company again, and it could be um, another one. One of the ones we're looking at today is looking at Warner Brothers Discovery that and it's about 3,000 words so it's quite a lengthy article but um, they're always going to be companies that I own so it's more of a review they're not necessarily going to be giving you the background to the company as if you've not been introduced to it they're very much expecting you to have read the first the, the, the original write-up so there's that format and then I also have because I'm uh, making my portfolio public I've got whenever I buy or sell a stock I'll do a portfolio update um, so this one was on that I'm going to look at today was on the 31st of May and it was a actually clearing out one position and reinvesting it into several of the others remaining in the portfolio so um, things like that are going to be in there so just to give you another idea of the other kind of things um, that there will also be I'm planning to do quarterly portfolio updates which will just be a a sort of review of the portfolio with a bit of a performance so you can see how how much I've added to it and how much I've uh, you know how it's moved around and how individual positions have performed when you sort of subtract out the cash additions I've made uh, but anyway let's have a look today so I'll start off with the most more recent of the two which is a update on Warner Brothers Discovery so again this is expecting you to have listened to the previous the original sort of podcast I did on Warner Brothers Discovery or the re having read the write-up so you got a bit of an understanding of of the background of the company and the investment fees and so on and this is just giving you an update on what it's done since that original update which i believe was in february so yeah well um what's happened in the months since so first of all we had the launch of max that i've said here on 23rd of May, Warner Bros. Discovery released their new DTC direct-to-consumer product with the name and tagline Max, the one to watch. They announced and showcased the new app, the new platform in an event marking the 100th year anniversary of Warner Brothers, held on the 12th of April that also included a preview of the upcoming slate of TV shows and movies being produced by the studios. On the whole, it seems that they've taken and enhanced many of the features present in Discovery Plus, but absent in HBO Max. Examples include a proper recommendation system with machine learning capabilities that will allow it to improve over time, separate accounts for different members of the family with their own personalized recommendations and preferences, parental restrictions can be applied, and there's a kid's account with such restrictions added by default. Email alerts if subscription payments fail. Believe it or not, HBO Max couldn't do this, and this should reduce turn 
uh, sorry, reduce churn from just subscriptions inadvertently lapsing. A simplified process for making app changes that allows the operations and marketing teams to perform updates themselves without input from developers. Changes can now be made in a day rather than multiple weeks, so a substantial efficiency improvement. In general, it seems that Discovery Plus was a better designed app than HBO Max. Something that supports this verdict is that the vast majority of HBO Max content viewing came from clicks on the home page, whereas for Discovery Plus the clicks came from many different pages. This shows that Discovery Plus did a better job of encouraging users to explore the app and content on offer. The result was significantly more viewing time. Max has been rebuilt from the ground up with an improved page and menu layout that allows users to navigate through the now substantially increased content library. You can see a couple of screenshots taken from the iOS app. So I was, I'm unable to actually access the app in the UK. Uh, it's only available in the US at the moment. But thanks. Um, fortunately, I was given a uh, a couple of screenshots by Spencer Garnets from Breedy Capital, another Substack, which is a newsletter, which is a, a good read. Um, he gave me a couple of ones. He also gave me the one that's the uh, the main, uh, what I've used as the thumbnail as well at the top. But yeah, it looks, uh, looks quite interesting. The uh, They also gave you some stuff in the, they did like a special call for the, when they presented this uh, new platform at that 100th year anniversary event. Uh, it was live streamed and you can go back and look at that and they did give you some sort of early screenshots then that was from the 12th of April I think it looks slightly different um, in, in what uh, Spencer's sent me the, the screenshots here possibly that's because they weren't showing the iOS app they are showing maybe a TV version but I, I don't know but um, yeah overall the app has been well received with many reviews referencing the substantially improved performance and expanded content offering in the Apple App Store, it's the number one app in entertainment, and as of the 10th of June, it has 4.8 out of 5 stars from 321,800 ratings. This is significantly better than Netflix, which is number 3, with 3.7 out of 5 stars from a similar number of reviews. So yeah, it was uh, quite interesting to see that. I actually did a Twitter post about this, because the numbers of ratings are pretty similar. But um, yeah, Netflix is rated quite a bit lower which is quite interesting because one of the big things that and I've I've used Netflix and I've, I've never found it to be particularly special the actual app um, I've always found it easier to find what I want to watch and maybe something like uh, Prime Video from Amazon or something like that than, than I have with Netflix though it is Netflix is definitely better than some other platforms, I would say it's definitely better than than Disney, for instance, or some of the other apps that I've used. But yeah, I generally found it to be um, pretty hard to find something I actually wanted to watch on Netflix, which is why I kind of, well before I was even considering Warner Brothers Discovery and like that, so it's not any bias involved here, well before that I decided to uh, drop my Netflix subscription. Um, 
but yeah, I have used Netflix on and off over the years. I haven't, like I say, I haven't got experience of the Max app or even the HBO one before it because they're not available in the UK. But um, everything normally, all the to watch all the HBO shows and and Warner Media films and so on. Normally they're available through Now TV. I think they're licensed out, and Now TV is a Sky um, streaming product. So, but yeah, this is quite interesting. I will say that the the overall rating numbers were quite low. They were lower than I would have expected, considering I think on the Google Play Store when I looked at Netflix, it had something like twelve million ratings. So I don't know whether that you know that is just a case of fewer users maybe of of iPhones and so that's just the proportionate numbers but I'm not sure whether that's necessarily true I don't know I, I, I well I'm sure there are a lot more Android users just because of the price point being cheaper is much more globally accessible and so on so maybe that's right but it is quite interesting that in pretty well less than a month we've got over 300,000 reviews on Max, and in all the time that Netflix has been on the apps, the Apple App Store, um, it's only had three hundred and fifty-one point eight thousand. So, a little curious, but um, anyway, the overall, the actual rating, um, and the ranking right now in the App Store are the the key bit, number one and number three respectively, and four point eight versus three point seven stars. The transition was designed to be as frictionless as possible, with most users simply needing to download the new app when prompted and getting automatically logged in. However, given the scale of the migration and the number of different devices affected, it would be unrealistic to expect it to proceed flawlessly. The issues reported seem to revolve largely around problems logging in, with errors like the one shown below. So this was... I had a interesting debate with a guy called David August on Twitter and I've put a link to his Twitter here because I've taken the screenshot that he posted um, around errors and, and so on um, he was of the, the view that it should be pretty simple to roll out something of this kind of scale without and it happens all the time apparently without any issues but I was quite a bit more sceptical of that and having sort of worked on uh, migrations from a development side I can tell you that, that it's very difficult to spot every possible scenario I mean I've dealt with things that are far smaller than these kind of things they've been they're dealing with here across all these different devices all these millions of accounts it just you know it's mind-boggling and the fact that they managed to do it with relatively small numbers of you know, as a percentage, relatively small numbers of issues and complaints, and being able to get a 4.8 out of 5 stars app rating tells me that, that for the majority, vast majority of people it worked pretty smoothly, um, or any issues were fairly quickly sorted out and they were just, and their rating is based on their impressions of the actual app. Uh, so yeah, pretty, um, pretty good considering I think it went about as well as could be expected in fact maybe uh, maybe better than expected 
but here, right, here we a couple of other issues so another issue that that has sorry another issue has been to do with the staggering of the launch with the US release coming before other regions where HBO Max is accessible people traveling from the US to these countries are unable to log in to either app um, so I had somebody else oh, I was actually Alex Nishiporzik the um, CEO of TinyBuild um, commented on the post telling me that uh, when I asked this question about whether people well I didn't get it a poll asking about whether people had had any issues with the migration and um, he commented saying that it works great if you're in the US but if you went to another country and you took your phone or your iPad or whatever with you and uh, you couldn't access Max because it hadn't been um, you couldn't access Max without a VPN sorry so you had to basically pretend you were still in the US. Um, and if you tried, because they hadn't been, the actual app hadn't been launched in the country that you'd moved to, even though that country had HBO Max, so, and you couldn't, you think, oh, well, maybe you could go back to, you, you could still use the HBO Max app, but apparently not. Because um, once you'd basically done the, the migration across of your credentials from HBO Max to max the hbo max app no longer worked no longer functioned so um you uh yeah you weren't able to use that either so yeah there was a bit of a loophole uh left there people traveling but again that's probably a pretty small uh, minority of cases and once max has been ha has replaced hbo max in those territories as well it will um that problem will be resolved. As I said, on the whole, the issues seem to have only affected a minority of users and in many cases have now been resolved. Not a bad result given the scale of the task. And the migration is likely to have created some churn, but hopefully this will be counterbalanced by people joining to try out the new app. So let's have a look at, talk about the, um, content strategy they're going to be using for Max. So in terms of content, management has said the app will contain as much of the combined Warner Media and Discovery libraries as possible, with some restrictions for content that is currently licensed out to third exclusively to third parties. Going forward, they aim to keep the top shows representing greater than 90% of viewing time exclusive to Max with the remaining shows that don't get so much attention being licensed out. Interestingly, management disclosed that five shows represent 90% of what people are watching and 20 shows represent 98%. This demonstrates the level of viewer concentration and the opportunity to generate additional revenue by licensing out content without diminishing the attractiveness of a Mac subscription. Movies will only appear on Macs after they've been through theatre and then paid video on demand, PVOD. Releasing films straight to streaming during the pandemic substantially reduced their revenues and has been recognised as a mistake by much of the industry. For TV shows, management has found that releasing episodes on a weekly basis has significantly boosted their success, keeping the energy around a hit show alive for 10 or more weeks. We saw this with The Last of Us, which had increasing viewer numbers each week, as more and more people heard about the show. I myself only started watching after the first four episodes were already out, 
but then vi viewed the final three episodes on the day of release. There's also been some talk of sports coming to Max if it makes economic sense. Doing so would likely increase subscriber numbers and help reduce churn, but the potential loss in the linear business may outweigh the gain in DTC. International expansion. In a number of regions, the company is locked into licensing agreements that prevent them rolling out Max in the next few years. When these agreements come to an end, management has said they will determine whether to launch Max or continue licensing using two criteria. The launch would be profitable within three to five years, and the company is in a position to launch Max in the next year. If either is non if either is not true, or untrue, they will then they will continue licensing out the content to third parties. For free ad-supported television, fast television, or fast, the company is taking the strategy of putting its content out on existing platforms like Roku and Tubi, Tubby, I don't know how you pronounce that one, while it develops its own. There's also been some talk about bundling and things like that. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, that seems to be what David Zazlov thinks at the moment it will be the future for streaming to actually make like a kind of cable the DTC equivalent of a cable bundle um, so I'm thinking it, that we might see something more along those lines maybe they're going to propose something or put together but like he says if they don't he thinks it'll be it's quite likely that companies like Roku or or Apple or whatever will um, will do it instead so getting ahead of the curve there. Alright, let's move on to have a look at some recent and upcoming releases. So first looking at TV. We recently had the fourth and final season of Succession, which has averaged 8.7 million total viewers, live and delayed, per episode, 40% higher than the third season. While these numbers are great on their own and similar to those of two sorry of season two of the White Lotus, nine and a half million, they do pale a little in comparison to The Last of Us, which averaged thirty two million viewers per episode. Quite phenomenal really. Coming out later this year is The Penguin, a spin off series set one week after the events of the Batman movie, with Colin Farrell resuming his acclaimed performance as the leading role. And it'll also be a nice little bridge between now and the the ne the uh, the second Batman movie. And um, I think there was some talk as well. Of this it's a bit of a almost a pilot in a way. This Penguin series because there might be a a Penguin movie if um, if this series is well enough received. I think Colin Farrell has said as much in an interview. But um, looking further out, the company has made the big announcement that they will be retelling the entire Harry Potter story as a TV series over the course of 10 years. Given the popularity of the franchise, this has the potential to be highly lucrative. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a really big thing, and I think it hadn't, Harry Potter hadn't really been touched for well over a decade. 
So um, obviously they they had the Fantastic Beasts top, but the original sort of Harry Potter story, nothing had been done with it for uh, well over a decade. So yeah, it's, um, the studio is picking that back up again, and I think for um, yeah, we'll get onto this later. But Lord of the Rings as well, which is another big one, um, is now uh, something else that they're bringing back up there, making the most of the of the IP they have available and uh, monetizing it to the best of its potential. So let's have a look at um, so yeah we've had a look at TV now let's move on to movies. In April we had the release of Evil Dead Rise which did reasonably well for its genre bringing in around 145 million dollars in worldwide box office ticket sales and uh, at least two of those were due to me. While this isn't nearly as much as many of the big action movies, the relatively low production cost, approximately $20 million, mean the movie is likely generated a decent return on capital. So yeah, I looked up um, $20 million. The, the production cost won't include marketing and so on, which is estimated to be around maybe another 15 to $20 million. So yeah, it could be something like $40 million, um, dollars would be the cost and then I think for so the worldwide box office as I understand it is something like uh, domestic meaning America uh, US sale um, ticket sales they get something like 60% of the ticket price and then internationally it's more some it's more around 30 to 40% so um, depending on sort of the mix of the two uh, you can kind of estimate that maybe maybe out of 145, it would be something like um, yeah, 70 million or something, 70 to 80 million, maybe depending on the mix between domestic and and international box office. Uh, yeah, you could maybe you could expect that to be roughly what they actually brought home from that, which is still. A nice tidy profit on the production costs and marketing expenses, which let's say is forty million. So yeah, you're gonna maybe maybe two x to your cost there, and that's just on the on the box office, not on the um, not on the you know PVOD um, or uh, you know or then when it goes on to where it's licensed out or ends up on which is quite likely it will be licensed out because it's not being a, a super big hit movie it will make one be one that would make sense to license out and so on so yeah that additional revenue then will um will likely um increase it but yeah even just on the box office we've got a pretty good pretty good return there but again it doesn't it's not necessarily going to be as big in absolute or nominal terms as um, some of the bigger releases, but in terms of a percentage return, it's pretty good if you can double if you can make your money back and then uh, effectively double it uh, just in the box office, just in the cinema release. So coming up later this year, we've got a number of big releases, including the Flash, which is coming up on coming out on the sixteenth, so next Friday here in the UK. Barbie. Meg 2, The Trench, Dune Part 2, 
and a second Aquaman film called Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. All five films have estimated production budgets between $100 and $210 million, with The Flash and Aquaman 2 right at the top of this range. So I think The Flash was about $200 million and Aquaman was the $210 So, But as we'll get on to in a minute, um, the first Aquaman film did over a billion dollars in box office sales. So uh, yeah, we should... If it and it does if it does the same again, then uh, we should definitely be getting that money back. So, Dune Part One and the Meg brought in around four hundred and five hundred million dollars, respectively, at the global box office. So we can expect pretty big numbers from the sequels. Aquaman Two also has significant promise after the resounding success of the first movie which had global box office sales exceeding $1 billion. So yeah, that, so yeah if we just assume we get something like, just to make the numbers simple, because um, I haven't, don't know the exact split between domestic and international, let's say we just got something like 50% of the box office back, just to make it simple. Um, then yeah, that would have, Aquaman would have more than doubled its uh, investment. Um, You'd have got something like with the June part one. I think I don't think I think they was like a hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty million dollars initial investment. And if you're getting back, yeah, it's probably that one probably made a a reasonable profit. Probably they got um, something like a thirty, forty percent return or something like that on it. Maybe a bit more in the initial release. Obviously, they'll have made a lot more from streaming and what and um and sales of s um paid video on demand and what have you um and then uh yeah and the meg i think that was similar like that was somewhere around 100 150 170 something like that um for that one as well so yeah and that was 500 million so that was probably a bit of a bigger margin on that one maybe um maybe closer to 100 million dollars made to sort of yeah 50s to 70 50s 60s 70% return something like that um yeah so pretty pretty good business from those ones um so like the flash and barbie are set for release in june and july respectively we have some early movie critic reviews for the former Flash, which thus far have averaged around six out of ten. Many, which is uh, not quite as high as we would, as we would hope. Many of the less positive ones have been coloured by the unfortunate off-screen behaviour of Ezra Miller, who plays the Flash. I think um, I don't know the exact details, but I think there was some uh, arrests, and he's possibly charged on something it remains to be seen how the movie and the star's controversy will be received by the wider public but it's less than ideal and the lower review score alone might be enough to take away some early momentum in its favour we have appearances from both Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton as Batman and the introduction of Supergirl to the franchise so yeah on the um, on the contract there 
Ezra Miller controversy. I'd not even heard about it before I actually started reading these reviews. So it's unfortunate that all these review, a lot of the reviews mentioned the controversy. So that was the first thing I'd heard of it. But to be honest, most of it will just be a case of, for me, if I was choosing to go to a movie, I'd look at the trailer, look at the review, and it is unfortunate the reviews are... Um, Critical reviews are not as high as you would hope, but there were some like sort of eight or eight or nines out of ten in there. Like I say, average six out of ten. So it just depends how much it affected. It wouldn't. It's not going to stop me going to see the movie. I was planning to go see it anyway, um, and I still think it's going to have a lot of appeal, and it looks great with the um, Michael Keaton coming back and so on. You've got various sort of um, things that will draw in fans of, of various uh, parts of the overall DC franchise and stuff um, historical fans of Batman and Michael Keaton as, as Batman and so on um, yeah and I think the the Supergirl element as well looks quite interesting so yeah it's definitely one, it definitely hasn't put me off but it has, it has definitely seeing a lower review definitely does um make me hesitate slightly if I was just seeing this obviously things have maybe been coloured a bit by me being a shareholder but if you're just, just taking that aside I can see that it would perhaps make me hesitate maybe I would not rush to see it I would be waiting to see what the kind of user reviews came out out or something like that if I wasn't um, but yeah anyway it's um it, it looks like it'll be good and we'll have to just see how it plays out but that's potentially going to take it's going to potentially reduce a little bit reduce a little bit of the early momentum that you'd hope for there were a lot of people going us on but some people a lot of people enough people probably are just not going to pay attention to any of the the negative stuff and um just go and see it just because of his batman is supergirl is the flash so yeah well um if they go in and they like it and they review it and the user reviews are good it should uh should be fine and we'll see uh looking Ahead to 2024, several big titles have been announced. Starting in March, there's Godzilla X Kong, Times Kong, The New Empire, which follows on from Godzilla vs. Kong, released in 2021. The first movie had a production budget between 155 and $200 million and generated $470 million in global box office sales despite the pandemic. Top performing entries in the Godzilla and Kong franchises have generated north of $500 million. So yeah, we could, we'll hopefully be looking at um, a reasonable return on those. Set for release in April, there's The Lord of the Rings, The War of the Rohirrim, an animated movie set 183 years before the events of The Two Towers. The company has also announced that it has secured a license to produce three new live-action films set in the Lord of the Rings universe. So it's not it's not a remake of the original movies or anything. It will be new stories set within um, the sort of confines of the of the original books. The stuff that's mentioned in there at various points that didn't make it into the the main trilogy of films uh, the main uh, Fellowship of the Ring story and so on in September there's Beetlejuice 2 
directed by Tim Burton and featuring an all-star cast including Michael Keaton and Winona Ryder who's from Stranger Things that's what I recognise her from but she was they were both in the original movie given the cult classic status of the 1988 movie we can expect this to draw a decent audience yep, so we'll see that one plays out The final movie announced for 2024 and probably the most promising is Joker Folie Adu. The sequel to the incredibly successful Joker released in 2019. The first movie had a budget of 55 to 70 million dollars and generated over 1 billion dollars at the box office. A quite staggering return. That is quite a staggering return indeed. Um <laughs> they were laughing all the way to the bank as they say I mean that if let's say they did um, so they had 500 million dollars actually coming back that's just like a 4 or 5x your, your money at least before you even before it even leaves the cinema so the sequel has an estimated budget of 150 million dollars and I think it has um Lady Gaga playing Harlequin is the one little thing I know about it. Um, but even if it does half as well as the first movie, it will be a commercial success. Moving to 2025, we have three big movies that have been announced. Minecraft, Superman Legacy, and The Batman Part 2. So, yeah, it's interesting... Um, Let's have a look. Um, yeah, the video. Yeah, so this I'm just putting on a little bit of stuff here talking about um, what we've seen with video game movies and TV shows recently. Um, for context, with the with Minecraft, which is obviously a a very big um, video game played by fast fast numbers of people, as you'll hear. Video game movies and TV series have done very well recently, with the most prominent example this year being the Super Mario Bros. movie, which made close to $1.3 billion in global box office sales on a production budget of $100 million. Minecraft is the best-selling video game in history, with more than 200 million copies sold since its release in 2011, and a number of recent spin-offs. We might, not, we might not be able to expect Super Mario Bros. numbers given the franchise's long history, but I expect ticket sales will be big. The last solo Superman film was Man of Steel, released in 2013, which started the DC Extended Universe DCU, franchise. This movie had a substantial production budget of $225 million and performed reasonably well with a global box office of $668 million. Superman has since featured in Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice 2016 and Justice League 2017, both of which had the common trait of being very high budget but being fairly poorly received by fans. The latter is unlikely to have made a profit with a production budget of $300 million 
and a global box office of just $655 million. The assumed break-even point was $750 million. So yes, quite a... Uh, so this must be assuming roughly like a 40 to 5 to 50 percent things like that if you're going to be um if that's the break even for it so maybe this is a bigger movie so maybe there was 20 maybe 30 40 million spent on it yeah so it's quite a big um quite a big bar they had to cross there they're probably hoping for i don't know whether i don't think aquaman had been released at this point no but they're obviously hoping these uh these films were going to be doing a billion plus um and hence why they had such massive budgets um but yeah what was quite interesting is um what follows so the franchise was somewhat restored in 2021 with the release of Zack Snyder's Justice League, a four-hour version of the original Justice League film that was very well received by audiences and critics alike. However, it's unlikely to have recovered the financial losses due to going straight to streaming on HBO Max. So yeah, it had an eight, I think it went from, the original film was 6.1 out of 10 on IMDb, this from all user reviews. Um... And it went to, I think, an 8 out of 10 with the re-release um, that was, yeah, double the length of the original film. So, yeah, it was, um, and I, I did actually watch that the other week because this, I basically just completely skipped over this film because it had not been very well received in the, the cinema at the time and I just sort of, um, I sort of ignored it and then... Um, when yeah and now but then when i saw that there'd been a, a this four hour version that was eight out of ten i was um i was interested yeah, and it kept me gripped all the way all through the four hours was not boring at all it was um yeah, it was great to give him zach snyder being given a free free reign on it um to sort of uh, a long leash or as they say um to just sort of direct it how he wants and it, it came out it came out with a quite a like I say, a four-hour epic. And, um, yeah, I mean, the first one, a lot of the problem came from the fact that Zack Snyder originally was directing it, but about halfway through the production, uh, for personal reasons, he had to leave, which meant that they had to change directors halfway through, actually, the film being produced. Just uh, mind-boggling to think that the effort of trying to, piece together something out of the ruins when you the wreckage when you've got um and you can you can understand why it ended up costing 300 million dollars um yeah with the everything that would have gone into that trying to overhaul the the film and try and create something two hours yeah just a bit too rushed with all the characters and what have you uh, but anyway it's they seem to have somewhat restored it um shame that it couldn't get released in the cinema but um this was 2021 during the pandemic so let's have a look the batman so the f first uh, film that was released in 2022 was well reviewed and generated 766 million dollars at the box office 
against a production budget of $200 million. It should be noted that the box office figure is likely to have been impacted by the still widespread lockdowns in early 2022 when it was released. Correspondingly, the true figure should probably have been closer to $1 billion. More like the, the Joker or Aquaman. The film was much darker than earlier entries in the Batman franchise, evidently inspired by the success of the R-rated Joker, which, by the way, was the first ever R-rated film. Um, well, I guess you would call it 18 plus or whatever in the UK, but I think R-rated is what they refer to it um, in America. And, um, it was the first ever R-rated film to do over a billion dollars, so yeah, quite, a, quite an achievement. So it was evidently inspired by the success of the R-rated Joker and seems to have pulled in a different kind of audience. We can hopefully expect the Batman Part 2 to do as well or better now the audience is there. See, I would describe the, the Batman as um, being uh, a little bit like the film 7, but with uh, with Batman as the detective. <laughs> so it was quite quite dark with a serial killer and what have you. And, um, yeah, like a sort of detective work going on and everything it was uh, it was very good so now we want to move on to talk about the recent writers strikes so the writers guild of america or wga commenced striking on the 2nd of may a day after their previous contract ended these strikes have already are already having an impact with major shows like netflix's stranger things halting production on its fifth season According to the WGA, their new proposals, and I've got a link here if you want to look at it, would gain writers and cost studios an additional $429 million per year. Of course, this figure would have been divided between all the different studios, so the cost of, to Warner Bros. Discovery, were they to accept the terms, would probably have been less than $100 million. It's hard to say how long the strike will go on, the last WGA strike back in 2007 to 2008 lasted for 100 days, so just over three months. So the end could be could still be a little way off. In terms of impact on Warner Brothers Discovery, the short-term consequences are likely to be some reputational damage that might affect advertising revenue, but is unlikely to alter the success of titles released this year. The bigger impact will be felt further out in 2024 and 2025, the years when we've got some big films coming out, like um, Batman Part 2 and what have you. Um, as films and TV shows are potentially delayed or their quality deteriorates. As an example of the, the impact a writer's strike can have on production, here's a quote from Daniel Craig, who played James Bond describing his experience of trying to film Quantum of Solace during the 2007-2008 to 2008 strike. On Quantum, we were effed. We had the bare bones of a script, and there was a writer's strike, and there was nothing we could do. We couldn't employ a writer to finish it. I say to myself, never again, but who knows. There was me trying to rewrite scenes, and a writer I am not. Daniel Craig, 2011. This goes quite some way to explaining why the movie is widely seen as the weakest in the series, 
and scored a fairly mediocre 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb. It also brought in significantly less at the box office than its sequel, Skyfall, 590 million versus 1.1 billion. You can't blame the financial crisis either, as this largely had no impact on similar ticket sales. So, quite an interesting little case to there. So, let's move on to have a look at gaming. Um, the big release we had in Q1 was Hogwarts Legacy. It's been a very positive year so far for the company's game studios, with Hogwarts Legacy selling over 15 million copies since its release on the 10th of February and generating more than $1.3 billion in revenue. The initial release was on PC, Xbox Series X-S and PlayStation 5, with a subsequent release on Xbox One and PlayStation 4 on the 5th of May, and Nintendo Switch and a Nintendo Switch release planned for later this year. The player base on the Xbox S-S and PlayStation 5 is significantly larger than the previous console generations, so this is where the majority of sales thus far have been concentrated. The Switch has a growing active player base which currently stands above 100 million, in line with both Xbox and PlayStation, so we could see a significant uptick in sales when this version of the game goes out. With the game's success, the company now has five game franchises that have generated more than $1 billion in revenue, namely Harry Potter, Mortal Kombat, Game of Thrones, Lego and DC. So in DC I think the biggest ones were the Arkham games produced by Rocksteady Studios, which I think we're going to mention in the other release coming out. So uh, yeah, those games did, did very well, very widely um widely uh played and very well received by fans um, yeah so let's have a look at a couple of upcoming releases so mortal kombat 1 is set for release in september on pc ps5 xbox series xss and switch the game is being developed by NetherRealm Studios that also made its predecessor, Mortal Kombat 11, which sold over 12 million copies. Yeah, and this game, I think, has been sold for something like uh, $70, so it's, yeah, it's quite a bit more than the the one Mortal Kombat 11 was, which I think was $50, so yeah, obviously inflation, what have you, but um, we'd expect if even if they sold the same number of copies, you'd be looking at a bigger, bigger revenue from it. Um, look and uh, expected in early 2024 is Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, developed by Rocksteady Studios, the team behind the highly successful Arkham games. This one has been a long time in development, with the original release date having been set for 2022, but pushed back twice. It's certainly better that the release is delayed to ensure the game is polished than it being a flop at launch, but hopefully it will come out on schedule. So yeah, quite interesting, and that game does look quite quite good from what they've done. Released quite a lot of videos for it, you can see on YouTube and stuff. Um, it does look quite interesting. I have to see if it does come out on schedule now, because it's been yeah pushed back twice. Um, I imagine quite a lot of that has to do with the pandemic. Um, I think the studio probably had quite a lot of trouble um, with 
developing during lockdowns when people couldn't come into the offices and what have you. Um, obviously struggled to get people to, to work from home effectively and stuff. Um, but yeah, hopefully they're out the other side of that now and they're going to finish it off and get it out. Let's move on to have a look at the financials. So the big news is that, that DTC turned a profit in Q1 with $50 million in EBITDA and management is now guiding that the segment will break even in 2023, a year ahead of schedule. Much of this shift to profit, profit, uh, profitability has come from cost savings rather than increased revenues. In Q1, cost of revenues, excluding depreciation and amortization, decreased to $1,815,000,000 from $1,994,000,000 the prior year. That's uh, with pro forma combined figures because the company hadn't actually, the companies hadn't actually merged at that point. And selling general administrative expenses decreased to $590 million from $1,175,000,000. Q2 is expected to deliver a loss of $300 million due to expenses incurred in launching Max but profits forecast for H2 are then expected to neutralize this loss, leaving the segment break even for the year. The motion picture business within the studio segment is still unprofitable, but getting closer to profitability. The segment as a whole is currently spending $20 billion a year on content, but management sees lots of inefficiencies in the operations and capital allocation of the studios that can be addressed to increase the return on investment. At the group level, management is still guiding for low to mid $11 billion EBITDA and one-third to one-half conversion to free cash flow. This would equate to somewhere between $3.7 to $5.5 billion. In Q1, free cash flow was negative $930 million due to a number of factors, including Q1 being seasonally weak, semi-annual debt interest payments of $920 million and continued restructuring and integration costs of nearly $500 million. Q2 free cash flow is expected to swing to positive $900 million, making H1 roughly cash neutral. This means H2 free cash flow will need to contribute most of the forecast $3.7 to $5.5 billion for the whole year. Given that the free cash flow conversion Q4 last year was nearly 100%, this does seem quite possible. On the 31st of March 2023, debt totaled $48,930,000,000 with the current and non-current portions amounting to $3,496,000,000 and $45,434,000,000 respectively. This is slightly down on the debt level on 31st of December 2022, which was $48,999,000,000, but the current portion of the debt has increased significantly from $365 million. I've actually uh, written pounds in, but that's uh, a little typo. The schedule of payments for the current debt includes $179 million of senior notes coming due on the coming due in September 2023, $83 million in December 2023, and $3.2 billion 
in Q1 2024 in order to meet their year-end target leverage of less than 4x the total debt will need to be brought down to around 44 billion dollars based on EBITDA of circa 11 billion we therefore expect most of the current debt outstanding to be paid off rather than rolled over into new debt issuance during Q1, the company issued $1.5 billion of 6.412% fixed, 6 fixed rate senior notes that mature in, in March 2026 and are redeemable, redeemable at par plus accrued and unpaid interest after March 2024. The proceeds were used to repay $1.5 billion of principal outstanding on the company's term loan. The company also entered into a fair value hedge on this debt issuance to guard against movements in the benchmark, benchmark rate of interest. Right, um, yep. So that uh, concludes the One Brothers Discovery update. Um, yeah, it was a, quite an interesting one to write. I went through all of the recent call transcripts, um, I went through the uh, they call it 10Q, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, had a look through the um, earnings call as well, and uh, then spent quite a lot of time digging through various sites to get um, figures for different movies and stuff, which is quite a rabbit hole. It was quite quite interesting though to see the kind of comparatively i look at different franchises and so on from different companies see how that some of the marvel movies did and other things like that to see um yeah it was, it was quite an interesting journey to have looks for those kind of things the numbers.com was quite good for some things um also found some decent stuff on wikipedia which actually just with all the re all the references were to things like the numbers.com or um i think was it watch mojo or something like that which is a imdb um thing as well that's some decent information and a few other sources and things um but yeah it's quite a, quite an interesting thing to delve into get some of that kind of those kind of figures and similar sort of stuff for the games and stuff as well right so let's have a look let's move on now to have a look at the portfolio change, changes i mentioned which i made on the 31st of May and um, and published on the same the uh, the note on the same date so here I've said I made some pretty sizable moves in my portfolio today with the largest being the decision to sell my entire Sumero Enterprises position amounting to 1,408 shares sold at a price of £3.26 per share the decision wasn't taken lightly, as I still see Sumero as a high-quality company that's trading very cheaply. If I had a large, more diversified portfolio, I'd happily, sorry, I'd likely be happy holding the shares. However, with my level of concentration, in, I need all my positions to be at very high conviction, and in the end I realised that my conviction just wasn't quite strong enough with Sumero. There are a number of reasons for this. Firstly, it has become clear that they've pretty well saturated all their available customers in the US, and so future US sales growth will be entirely dependent on how much work existing customers get, 
which is in turn a function of the overall level of construction demand. Internationally, there's still plenty of room for growth, but it's looking pretty unlikely that international sales will exceed those in the US for the foreseeable future. On this basis, the upside for the company is largely capped unless they start moving into other business lines, but this is not without risk. It's fair to say that the stock will still give you a good return as it trades at a single digit earnings multiple and pays out all the earnings they can't invest in a very healthy dividend. The second factor for me is that I don't feel I have sufficient understanding of the industry at present and would have to put in a significant amount of work to get to that point. Tending probably would need to read some books on it, maybe read some trade journals, attend, I was looking to see, maybe potentially attending an industry conference or something um, to just get a real feel for the comp. I, the thing I was struggling with a bit probably on the industry side is just um, competing products and technologies for the laser guided leveling. There's, I'd heard some talk about self-leveling le- um, self screeds that's used quite a lot in the UK. Uh, I think it's more of a top layer that they put on top of um, thing and, and more for indoor stuff. But um, I think a lot of the Samara stuff is large outdoor uh, projects. Um, makes up a, the largest sort of market for their, their large scale lasers, laser screens and stuff, the larger models and so on. Um, so there's not so much, uh, yeah, so I think this is like warehouses and hospitals and things like that that were using this self-leveling screen technology, but it did make me think that, you know, I don't really understand enough about the um, the sort of moat for the product and stuff like that. I just put that little seed of doubt in there, which I think is something you could you could remove if you could determine, you could say definitively, oh, that can you know this is a most of the sales come from these large sort of outdoor projects or large warehouses and things like that that um this self-leveling stuff wouldn't would not be cost effective for or it wouldn't work it's not going to be just um appropriate for areas that are exposed to the weather and things like that mate or you could you could look into it and argue it out but i feel like you'd need to spend quite a bit of time um really immersing yourself into the sector into the industry maybe attending the conferences like i say and seeing all the different products around and for the different companies and things and um yeah reading journals and all sorts of stuff which is just a level that i wasn't sure i wanted to go into for the company given the other factors like um the fact that they've saturated the u.s market and things like that just just kind of lowered my conviction slightly um and significantly enough for me to kind of ignore the valuation and feel like I wanted to uh, other companies I held were were more attractive. So yeah, and I've said here when I considered the other opportunities available, I decided that it wasn't worth it to me to do all the extra research. Again, I'm not seeking to dissuade anyone else from investing in the company. It just doesn't fit in my portfolio. So. It still seems like a very good company. I like the management. I've listened to quite a few of their earning calls um, live and what have you and asked questions and things. And it's, um, yeah, they do seem to to be very competent and everything. I think they're doing a good job and I like the capital allocation. But uh, yeah, it's just whether 
it for me whether it really stands out compared to some of the other opportunities I've got and again it probably would be something I would consider if I had a more diversified portfolio but I don't really have the time to if I had I'd need to be doing it sort of full time with um, time to go into and put in a similar amount of time to what I put in from my existing holdings um, into the additional holdings so I, I used the proceeds of the sale and some additional funds to add to five existing holdings these were 4,256 shares of tiny build for 74 pence a share bringing my total holding to 20,303 shares that's not my this is my largest position and highest conviction position 248 shares of Aviva for four pounds and three pence per share bringing my total holding to 1,381 shares 892 shares of Ecora resources for one pound 12 pence per share bring my total holding to 4,953 shares and uh, then 1,185 shares of Taylor Maritime Investments TMIP for 84 pence per share bringing my total holding to 6,964 shares and finally 109 shares of Warner Brothers Discovery for $11.36 per share, bringing my total holding to 673 shares. The Sumero position was sold at a loss, but this was of similar magnitude to the falls seen in the positions to which I added. So I'm pretty happy with the reallocation of, on the whole. Um, yeah, it's uh, on that on that point. Yeah, I'm pretty happy moving if i'd taken the money out and sold at a loss taken the money out and just sat on it in cash maybe then i would have you know the selling at a loss would have felt like the the wrong thing to do uh, maybe maybe not still with the thing but the fact that i was just able to redeploy it straight away into other holdings that i saw as equally cheap um it really takes a, takes out I didn't feel any negative at all about the fact that it had gone down and in that respect and I'd sold it a lot because all the other holdings were had fallen similarly so um, they were cheaper by that amount so I could buy that many more shares with the same proceeds. Um, you'll note that I didn't add to Fuller's. This was largely due to the position already being relatively large resulting from recent additions and price appreciation of approximately 10% on my average cost basis. Probably too early to say, but this one does appear to be proving its resilience to a recession. Right, yeah, so, um, yeah, just on that point, actually, I think I've mentioned this in another one, but, um, yeah, Fuller's historically has been, because it operates very much in the premium segment of hospitality and in the in the south south of England, mainly in London, in and around London, it's uh, very resistant to to recessions. And previously, not, you can't even see it, really see any kind of dip in sales um, during them. I think it, which is quite different to a lot of retail businesses and so on. 
so um and yeah it's it was it was hit by the pandemic um an unusual kind of recession because it based the only reason it was hit in that respect was that it was forced to shut its doors so you know it, it couldn't even serve people if it wanted to and people weren't going out because of lockdowns and everything so or um or even when the restrictions these people were hesitant so yeah it's uh, once the assuming that you don't have something like a pandemic um any kind of normal recession it's it's very resilient too so yeah i think it will uh happily weather anything any kind of recession coming up and having <laughs> recently been to their uh pub in uh king's cross station and paid i think seven pound fifty for a beer <laughs> and uh seeing how rammed it was with people all paying the same price uh i don't think they've got any issue um just to put that into perspective it's a seven pound fifty for a, a pint of beer from the draft there but if i bought the same pint of beer in a supermarket it probably would have been about two pounds so <laughs> absolutely massive markup just because you're buying it from a, a restaurant or a, yeah a pub and restaurant in london anyway yeah that's uh that's wraps up those two things so yeah this like i said this is a new um a new newsletter um series that sits along there's going to be these are going to be more frequent because like i say every time i buy or sell shares which could be monthly depends on i want to add to positions at certain months with salary coming in and so on or um if things move around and stuff um you're gonna get uh one of these updates then and then every sort of quarter i'm gonna give you uh, an update on all the companies that i hold just a brief sort of bit on each one and then as i'm just monitoring the companies um as i'm you know, they release their earnings or their um, annual reports or so on or um, have their, I attend their AGMs so I've got um, Tiny Builds AGM coming up on the 29th which I'm hoping to go to and then there'll be Fuller's I think in July maybe and then um, I'll be hopefully going across to flying over to Guernsey to attend Taylor Maritime Investments I'm quite eager to I feel one thing that's really missing for Taylor Maritime is that meeting the the management in person. I do really feel I want to do that with that one because it is screamingly cheap. I just want to just tick that little that niggling little box in the back of my mind, tick that little thing off, um, so I can fully be convicted. Because if I if I can, then I'll um, I mean, I'm continuing to add shares anyway, but. At the current price it is just ridiculous what we're looking at here this um a substantially a sub very substantial discount to the net asset value of the uh business and re above um pretty ridiculous uh cash flow yield and then the opportunity basically no tax because it's off sure so you, you you know the profits they're getting um the yeah the profits they're getting don't really don't really have to worry about taking tax off those before they're able to redeploy them in the business and and there's very very easy avenues for the redeployment because they recently 
acquired another company effectively, uh, Grindrod Shipping. They're able to, um, they use quite a bit of debt to do it. All they have to do really to increase the nav and um, the uh, also the cash flows and what have you it, uh, through by reducing debt interest payments is just to pay off the debt. So all they have to do is just keep paying off the debt and they can just keep growing the company's nav at a really crazy rate because their um, cash flow, uh, they, 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 I think, I can't remember the exact one, but it, anyway, it's, it's gross cash flow from their operations, I believe, um, and there is not really a lot of over, a lot that gets taken off that is is well over twenty percent at the moment, so they're um, they can just keep effectively paying, adding maybe twenty percent to the to the nav each year just by maybe those figures don't quite work out, but they've got a lot of a lot of opportunities to just grow the nav substantially every year. Um, yeah, and I think the overall fleet now is worth just shy of a billion dollars, and obviously they've got the debt on top of that which reduces the net asset value but it's still very substantial um and there was no share dilution done at all with the acquisition either because it was done using cash for the flows from operations and debt um so yeah very promising i would like to meet the management person but, but yeah so anyway these agms when i attend them and when i so when i've already done an update on taylor maritime but um Tiny Build just released their annual report and the notice of AGM, what have you. So, um, and Taylor Maritime will obviously be releasing a new annual report. Um, so, yeah, whenever these annual reports come out or there's significant sort of news like there has been with Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, with the Q1 release, and, which has included Max and Hogwarts Legacy and all sorts of big items in there, um, I'll, uh, I'll do an update. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, there's a, uh, so everyone who was previous, everyone automatically gets, when they sign up, will automatically get subscribed to both these updates and the stock analysis. But let's say if you came along and you just wanted to get the stock analysis or you just wanted to get the portfolio updates, you're not interested in new ideas or whatever, you can actually toggle in your account settings um, which one you want to receive. So yeah, if you don't like these updates, um, and you want to just receive the news um, stock ideas, then um, that I analyze and so on, then you can you can turn these off. But um, yeah, like I say, these are going to be more frequent than the stock analysis because uh, a lot of the well, all of the analysis, stock analysis so far have been my existing holdings, so um, they're going to be my priority really to to keep on top of those. And then it'll be I'll be fitting in. Um, I still want to do a decent number every year of um, new write-ups, but realistically it might be, I don't know, um, somewhere between four and six a year. So you might be waiting a couple of months uh, or more. Um, yeah, it could be two or three months bet between each new stock analysis where you should get these on a more regular cadence. So you're still getting some decent content coming out. But anyway, yeah, if uh, if you happen to have stumbled, yeah, so you can find both these updates freely, e easily available under the portfolio updates um, tab on the 
on the firmreturns.com website and then next to it you've got the stock analysis as well that I referenced you then get all these podcasts in there on there as well um, and yeah I'm also on Twitter at Firm Returns and I actually just have a, a Twitter tab which is just a, on the Firm Returns website as well you can see a tweet sort of feed there um, yeah I'm also on LinkedIn I've started to try and be a bit more active on there um, posting things on there as well and I've been talking to a few people on there um, yeah and you've and there's also of course email so yeah if you've got any comments about any of these things about my portfolio moves or my updates on these companies feel free to contact me through any of those, any of those methods um, sign up for free if you've um, if you've not done so already to receive more of these directly in your inbox um, yeah, and I think I think that's it. So thanks a lot for listening, and I'll uh, I'll see you all in the next one.